This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hey there, cat lovers. Welcome to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Prim, and I'm a small animal veterinarian and cat lover for a lifetime. So I try to answer questions and teach everybody things about their cats. And my question today is, how smart is my cat? So I reached out to some people that I know that I thought Mike could talk with us about how smart my cat is. And I found Virginia Morell. Now, Virginia is a New York Times bestselling author, and she has a book called Animal Wise, which explores animal intelligence in fun and creative ways. So I want to talk with her. I want to talk with her about all the animals, specifically cats. We'll be right back with Virginia Morell. She's a purebred, orange and white, Brittany. But when we adopted April, she started scratching like crazy. I said, what you put into a dog is what you get out. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. So we added a huge scoop of Dynavite in her bowl. She looked it clean. She loved it. Her coat is now soft. It's silky. Dynavite is nutrition. You get some Dynavite. How happy your dog will be. On Dynavite. She's Little Miss Hollywood. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat on Pet Life Radio. I have Virginia Morell, the New York Times bestselling author of the book Animal Wise with me. Hi, Virginia. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. I am very excited because I've thought for a long time that animals are much more intelligent than we give them credit for, and you are here to prove what I believe. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories that you use to illustrate animal intelligence in Animal Wise. Can you just dive right in? Uh, Sure. I guess one of the exciting discoveries that I always enjoy talking about is the one research that shows that ants actually are not as dumb as we think they are, that they're not just little robotic animals, but that they can do a lot of amazing things, such as measure the size of the area that they need for their nest, so they know how high a roof they need, they know how many entrances they want to have, they know they don't want to live near an ant graveyard where there are other dead ants around. I mean, it's really extraordinary. And there's just a study out today in the journal Science that shows that bumblebees are really smart, too. You know how, like, when you go to your home and maybe you're searching your in your purse for your keys and you can't see them but you reach around and you can find them by feel that requires two different kinds of intelligence one would be that you can find something by seeing it or one you know what it looks like and you imagine in your mind what it looks like and you can reach into your in your purse and you can find it by feeling for it bumblebees can do the same thing they have them learn how to find things like a a little ball that was shaped, that was just their size, and then they turned out the lights and they had the bumblebees show that they could find it too, just simply by feeling. So those kinds of studies show us that there is a lot of it that we don't understand about intelligence because it's something that seems to be universal. And all animals probably have a lot of these abilities. We just 
don't know how to test for them, or we imagine that animals are like robots. And so in Animal Wise, I tried to show that animals, how unrobot-like they are. And cats and dogs fall into these same very special categories because they are intelligent and have feelings in a lot of ways that any of us who own them or have them as pets, we see it immediately. We see the love in our dog's eyes for us, and we feel it in our cats when they sit with us. And now researchers at uh, a university here in Oregon, in Corvallis, Oregon State University, they've shown that pet cats actually do form attachments, loving attachments with their human owners that are exactly like those bonds that we see between children and their parents and dogs with their owners. So they have the same kind of attachment style. It's really very, very exciting to know that they have this need for what they call a secure base. And so if you are going to a strange room with your cat and leave your cat with a caretaker and then the person goes out and you come back, then the person that the cat is most attached to is much less stressed. And so that shows that just like a child, if you left it alone with a strange person for two minutes and then you came home or came back to the room with your kid there, that your kid would be much, much happier to see you or like a dog that's very excited to see its owner. And the same lab is doing a lot of work showing that cats, too, aren't animals that can't learn things, but they can learn a lot. If you spend the time and energy that's required to teach a cat something, and usually it's done treats, but they, too, will learn things just like dogs do. Do you have Absolutely. another question? Yeah. Sometimes cats learn things we don't really want them to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. They're always watching. And one of the things that we've, that we've learned about animals, uh, both in the wild and in uh, laboratory settings um, or where they're trying to find out more about how animals think, is that we have discovered that lots of animals, from bees, again, through turtles and cats and dogs, learn things just by watching. And so, of course, your cat's watching you and he's learning a lot of things every step that you do. He's figuring you out and he's figuring out how to perhaps get something that he wants or do something that he wants to do. Maybe you don't want him to, but this ability to learn through observation also seems to be be very widespread in the animal kingdom. So you mentioned some what we think of as simple life forms with ants and bees. But in your book, you also talk about animals that have historically thought to be intelligent, like dolphins. Can you talk a little bit about what you have learned about dolphins and dolphin intelligence? Oh, yes. The dolphins are very exciting to write about. I went to the National Aquarium in Baltimore to see a woman who was doing research with a young dolphin there. She wanted to see if dolphins can recognize themselves in mirrors. And this is thought to be proof that they think that an animal thinks of itself as having an eye, that it thinks of itself as a separate being. And there have been various studies done that show that children who at a particular age, around three or four, they begin to recognize themselves in mirrors. And chimpanzees do the same thing. So what other animals can recognize themselves in mirrors? Most of us don't think that our dogs or cats really can recognize themselves. They might look at a look at their image in the mirror and then jump away from it. They might be afraid. They might think it's um, a different animal, a, a competitor, and so they're more frightened of it. They might bark at it. 
the ones I've seen of cats show the cat, you know, kind of maybe doing a backflip, actually, once it sees its reflection in a mirror and then trying to look around behind the mirror to see where did that, where is that cat actually. So they don't seem to comprehend what a mirror is. But the dolphins, they reacted so differently. She put a, at the aquarium, there's a small room that's attached to the side of the aquarium and in, so she could fix to the glass of the aquarium a mirror and the dolphins could see it as they swam by. And one of the dolphins was a fairly new young dolphin. I think he was, he was three or four years old bear, they called him. And as he swam by, he did exactly like the adults did, which was to kind of slow down and take another look. And eventually, the adult dolphins would stand in front of the mirror, and they would open their mouths wide to look inside their mouths, just like most of us. We want to look at the places we can't see without the help of a mirror. And then a lot of the adults would turn their bodies in such a way so they could also examine their genital area. (laughs) And the little dolphin did exactly the same thing, but in much more exaggerated ways. It was so funny to watch. And the uh, adults sometimes would come by and they would shove each other out of the way to get a better look at themselves. You know, it was like, I don't want to see you in the mirror. I want to see myself. <laughs> so it was that very, very fascinating. It was wonderful to see. And it just, we had to be really quiet because she didn't want the dolphins to know that we were standing on the other side of the mirror. You know? <laughs> so, but we were doubled over with laughter at some of their antics and the way that they used this device to get a good look at themselves and the parts of themselves that they can't see. <laughs> it was so human-like, it really, really made us laugh. That's pretty striking. So, yeah. you know, we, we kind of think about intelligence sort of separate from emotion. And I'm not sure that's even really a, a good way to think of it because I think that we are our intelligence as well as our emotion. But you had investigated a little bit about elephants I think, and their emotions. Can you talk about that for my listeners? Oh, yes. And the important thing to realize is that scientists have also shown that emotions aren't separate from intelligence. There aren't like two different tracks in our brains or in our cells, one for rational thought and one for emotional thought. They've shown that the two, those two abilities go hand in hand. And you cannot make decisions if your emotions are not involved. So, Somehow, at some point, we hope that this gets better understood in the general public, that a rational being is also an emotional being. Those two are not separate tracks. And so with the elephants, they are very emotional creatures. They may move more slowly than we do, although if they're angry about something, they can really pick up speed like you can't believe. But in the wild, they are very well known to have these tight family bonds. And the way that a herd works, There's the mothers who lead the herd. The males have separate family groups. They hang out with other males, maybe their brothers or other males that they've met along the way. But they travel very separately, the male herds from the female herds. The female herd has made up of a mother, her sisters, their kids. So it's all females, except there may be some young males who eventually, when they reach uh, puberty, will go off and join these male groups. So within the female group, they all know each other. They recognize each other both by the sound of their voices and by scent. And the scientists have shown this in a number of different ways. They do playback recordings of their calls when certain individuals aren't present. 
and the elephants will look for that particular elephant that they uh, heard the playback call from. And the most interesting thing, I think, is their feelings about an elephant when one of their members dies. These are really sad times for an elephant when they find a member who's struggling, maybe is sick or has gotten older and is dying. And the other elephants will do things. They'll come alongside that individual, two of them on either side, and they'll try to get her to stand up again. They'll try to hold her up, and maybe she falls down again. They'll try to lift her with their trunks. They do everything they possibly can to get the individual back on her feet. But if she dies... Then the whole herd comes around and they stand by her like sentinels and guard her body. I've seen images of a mother who's died and her little calf standing next to her trying to understand what has happened to her mom. I mean, it's the most heartbreaking kind of scene and the other elephant standing nearby. But this tiny little body, this tiny little creature standing there next to her mom, it just is so sad. And eventually, the rest of the elephants may move on, and they sometimes they have to take a young elephant like that into captivity and raise her at a shelter where they can later put her back with her herd. But otherwise, because if she stays overnight with her dead mom, probably hyenas will come and, and kill her too, as well as eat her mom. So one of the things that they've tried to figure out is how much do elephants really feel about these moments and it looks so emotional to us do they know who has actually died do they what do they understand about death and how do they feel about it are they grieving are these scenes actually of a great emotional distress as it looks so much like to us but are we just projecting our feelings onto those other elephants and to so to try to understand that and to understand the behavior that elephants have towards they're dead, scientists have done a a really interesting test because they know that as elephants walk across the savanna, if they come across the bones of a dead elephant, they will stop and they will fondle those bones. If the skull is there, they will reach into the skull of the elephant, dead elephant, and they will fondle the teeth. They will touch it with their trunk and smell every crevice. It's almost as if they're doing a kind of a ritual with these bones. So they wanted to know, do they really know that those are elephant bones, not the bones of another big animal like a hippopotamus or a giraffe? And so they did a test where they put the skull of an elephant out and then a few feet away, the skull of a giraffe and the skull of a rhinoceros. I think those three large animals lined them all up and waited for elephants to come walking across the savanna and the herds would only stop and investigate the bones of the elephant. They never bothered with the equally large bones of a rhino or a giraffe, only the elephant. And that really suggests that they do understand that they are looking at the bones of their own kind. Now, what they tried to do beyond that was to see if they recognized the bones of individual elephants that had died in their herd. But that test didn't show that they did. They just seemed to recognize that these are bones of their kind. Even showing that, though, shows a a kind of a remarkable attachment to to animals of their own kind beyond death. And whether or not they have a kind of a religious feeling about these, or if it's some sort of a ritual practice, that we don't know. We just know that they do have um, recognition of elephants after they die.
it's really remarkable. I think that's astounding. So, you know, yeah, and, and this show is about about cats, of course, but I think the things that we learn about all animal species give us insights into our cats and, and really oh, into ourselves. So that's why I was so they excited do. to have you come and speak with us today. And what about this? I thought was super interesting. I want to touch on this. What about sure. rats that laugh? Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite studies. That was done by a scientist who since passed away, Yank Pinksip. And he, Yank, had worked with rats for a long time. And he noticed that the rats in his lab, that when they played together, they often had their mouths open. And he wondered, I wonder if they're making a sound. Are they doing something like laughing when they're playing, like kids do? Or if you watch puppies play, sometimes they make a lot of vocalizations. So, and also chimpanzees, when they play, they oftentimes make a breathy kind of a sound that sounds very much like laughing. What are the rats doing? Well, they, the sound, whatever sound they were making wasn't a sound we could hear because it's in the ultrasonic range beyond our hearing. And so he put, very smartly, he got bat detectors. And bats also make vocalizations that we can't hear But if you have a bat detector, you can record those sounds and then play them back, get a computer to do a simulation of what they sound like. And also you can look at the graphic of what the sound looks like, a sonogram that shows in kind of a barcode what the sound would sound like if we could hear it. And yes, they are making a sound that would sound like a little (laughs) tee-hee-hee-hee. It's so remarkable to think that all of those years, hundreds of years, I guess I'm trying to think when exactly the first rats were used in in scientific research, but say from about probably the middle of the 19th century, so probably around 1850 up to the present day, it's almost 200 years, people had never thought that the rats in their lab were doing anything that might be of interest, such as laughing. You know, it's just simply remarkable to me that it took one man who was curious enough to wonder why they had their mouths open while they were playing. And then he did the next thing that, you know, why are they laughing? Or why are they having their mouths open? And my gosh, they are making a sound that would be the equivalent to human laughter. I just love that study. It's one of my favorites. And he, he would always tell me, he said, I've, and then he showed it by tickling the rats. And he told me he tickled more rats than anyone else on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> to, to laugh. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever tickled a rat. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us haven't, but I got the opportunity to do that. He showed me how to do it. He said, now don't just tickle them on their, he says they like to be kind of rubbed along their sides. And he said, and after you do it a couple of times, he said, they will follow your hand around this box. And they did. I mean, it was so extraordinary. Then they want, they want to be tickled. It makes them laugh. It's a good sensation. So you tickle a rat and then you pull your hand away and drag it along the bottom of the cage or the box and the rat will follow you <laughs> asking for more. Please do it That's, for more. <laughs> hey, my pets do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say, I'd just seen on, I think it was a YouTube video that showed a cat who'd, whose friend, in, it was a feral kitty, but his friend had died in the wild um, and he was dragging his friend's body to a shelter where I guess he'd seen people, he knew that people put out food or something for, and so he was dragging his poor friend's body to this place where he thought someone might be able to help him. So cats, you know, too, also, they have, 
they just have so much more going on in their minds than we would normally give them credit for. They, too, have empathy, and not just for themselves, but for the other cats and for, and probably a little bit for us. They worry about us, too. Hopefully. <laughs> well, your, your book is amazing. I saw that you have a review statement on your book from Temple Grandin. And I love Temple. I, I got the opportunity to spend some time getting to know her and her understanding of animals is, is profound. And I just, Love that I got to talk with you today and learn. I encourage all of my listeners to go out and and find this book, Animal Wise, because I think it makes us more human when yes. we can understand the other beings that are here on this planet with us. Yes, I do too. No, I think it's really, truly important. And especially in this time where we're losing so many animals that we have never even got to sort of investigate how they see the world or how they feel, experience the world or what their feelings are like. and. Yes, it's a really important time for all of us animal lovers to work together and save these creatures who are so special. There's not another earth. And so they're all we're all here together on this one lovely blue ball soaring through space and we should watch out for one another as best we can. Well, and it's like losing a friend you never got a chance to get to know. And that's sad. So, yes, I'm with you. So, tell us how we can find more out about you. How can we find your book? How can we read your articles? How can we track oh. you down? Oh, thank you. Well, yes, you can certainly get, buy copies of, of Animal Wise. You can order them through your favorite bookstore or go to uh, Amazon.com. Uh, I'm sure all the online stores have copies of it. I know Amazon does. It was, when it first came out, one of Amazon's bestsellers and the animal category. So those are all the usual places to find books. Probably used bookstores are also another possibility because it was published in 2013, so it's been out for a while. And likely there are used copies around for your listeners if they want to go that route. Um, my articles are also available through National Geographic online. They can look up my last name, Morell, M-O-R-E-L-L, and they'll see a lot of different stories that I've done about a variety of animals. They're just talking to me now, asking me if I would like to go do a story about the lions, the last surviving Asiatic lions, which are found in India. Uh, so I'm really excited about that opportunity. And my articles are also available at Science dot com sciencenews.com i think that's there well if you if you get to address. if you get to do that about asiatic lions i want to know about it i want to okay <laughs> i'll be happy well, to yeah i know I, that you are always on deadlines and and i just appreciate you taking the time out to, to try to educate my listeners about how smart their cat and and really all of our animal friends are and teach yes. us to respect that and see them as sentient beings that, that deserve our respect. So thank you so much. Oh, yes. And if I can just add, I want to just add that I have always loved birds and so I enjoy watching them, but I never really thought they paid very much attention to me. Boy, did my attitude toward birds change after I wrote this book. And I realized most of them, probably even the little hummingbirds in our yard, they know who I am. <laughs> they, they know what I'm doing. <laughs> they're watching. <laughs> don't, oh, don't you know what? I'm glad you, that they're not. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned birds because I totally forgot to ask you about the wife-beating parrots. Oh, yes. Isn't that Yes. Hysterical? Talk about the wife-beating parrots before okay. we wrap up. Okay. So these are little parrots, the green-rumped parrotlets that live in Ecuador. 
and uh, Venezuela. And I went with a researcher who wor- was working with a group of them in Venezuela. And he has arranged these uh, nesting boxes down a f- uh, ranch's fence line. So every place where there's a fence post, he's put up a PVC nesting box for these parrots to nest in. And boy, the parrots just move in. It's like a condo dream for the parrots because normally they have to find a tree hole or a fence post hole where they can raise their young. They can't have a family if they don't have a house. And so they need to have a a little place where they can go inside and shelter. And they will fight to the death over these houses. It's just amazing to me. And also, they, like you were talking about these wife-beating parrots, well, a couple may decide that they want to move in together. They've formed a pair, and they're going to raise their kids together. And But the husband turns out to maybe not be such a good husband. He'll go off and he'll forage and come back with the food to feed her. What does he do when he gets back to the nesting box? He calls her by her little call, which is like a, a name, and she comes up out of the nesting box, and she's been taking care of the kids all day, and she probably is hungry. He's got the food, but maybe he wants to have sex before he feeds her. So they might have to have a discussion. And in some cases, we were watching these birds through uh, our spotting scopes, and he would just reach over and give her a big bite on the back of the neck. <laughs> the scientist said, oh, my gosh, he says, that's not going to last. That pair isn't going to last very long. She'll get rid of him. She'll divorce him and get somebody else if he's going to do that. <laughs> that's no good. <laughs> and the parents well, do. They we don't anthropomorphize. Maybe, you know, maybe they're okay with that. <laughs> but maybe not. He'd watched enough of them that... He had these logs going back 20 years showing what happened at various nesting boxes. And the guys who did those sorts of things to their partners, those partners wouldn't have another family with that bird that next year. (laughs) They would divorce, and they would choose another guy. You (laughs) go, girl. There are guys out there to choose from. (laughs) So why stay with a wife beater? (laughs) Exactly. So see, they're smart and they're intuitive. So yeah, that's amazing. Well, I'm glad we got to get the wife-beating parrot story. Yes, I am too. (laughs) There are a lot of fun stories in my book, I like to think so. (laughs) So thank you again. And and readers, go out there and check out this book because it'll make you laugh and it'll make you think. So um, it's called Animal Wise Again. And thank you listeners for always following and listening to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. And thanks to our producer, Mark Winter. And I want everyone to go out and have a perfect day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.